If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. I think it's page 954 if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. I want to begin, and you'll have to forgive me, but I want to begin with perhaps the gloomiest passage in all the Bible. And hopefully we'll get to some good news before the message time is over, but I want to begin with gloom, pure gloom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, the person reported to be the wisest person in the world comes near the end of his life and he just shares his outlook on life. He shares his disposition. He doesn't hold anything back. He tells us what is in his heart and what we see in his heart is gloom and despair. Now, some of the things he's going to complain about are specifically connected to old age and end-of-life kinds of issues. And so some people may be able to have some identity to that, but I think everybody will be able to see some parallels in his gloom, in his depression, in his discouragement and despair. I want you to hear, though it is, it is pretty depressing, I want you to hear the outlook of Solomon as he comes near the end of life. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, he says, So remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come and the years approach, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Now he begins with a command, remember your creator in the days of your youth, and that is a command, but you see here also an expression of his regret. He looks back on his life and his life is filled with regret. He says to his hearers, you need to pay close attention in your early years because when you come to the place that I find myself, you will be filled with regret. Now we've been focused on depression for the last six weeks and depression and regret are different things, but they're often first cousins. You know what I mean? Often when you have one, you have the other. They don't always go together, but sometimes they do, and in this case, they did. Verse 2, he says, Before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain... You have to know that this is a poetic expression, and so you have to read between the lines, really, to see all of what he is saying. But here he's talking about the darkness of life, the gloom. He says, my life is dark. And he says at the end of verse 2, the clouds return after the rain. What he means by that is, I don't see an end to this. I keep thinking that tomorrow it will get better, but even after the rain, the clouds are still there. I don't see any hope in the midst of my despair. One of the things that's often common of people who are struggling with depression is that they will say they don't see any way that this will ever change. He says in verse 3, again, very poetic language, he says, On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. There he's referring to his physical weakness. He's talking about his arms in the beginning of the verse and his legs in the middle of the verse. Uh, he's talking about a loss of appetite and the, and the dimming of the eyes. He's, he's talking here specifically about issues related uh, to getting older. He says in verse 4, the doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. Again, that's a, um, believe it or not, that's a reference to his appetite. When one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint. He's talking about the inability to get any good sleep. And then we skip down to verse 6. He's 
going to talk about the fear of death. It, this is gloomy. It goes from gloom to worse gloom. And he says in verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped, these are all poetic expressions of death, before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. He's speaking of his death, his pending death. And he sums it up in verse 8 by saying, absolute futility, says the teacher, everything is futile. Here is a gloomy description of what despair and discouragement and depression can look like in any point in life, but especially as we come to the end of life. We've been spending our time over the last six weeks talking about finding hope, the journey from depression to joy. And we've asked ourselves if we struggle with depression, and, and that's something I think touches everyone's life from time to time. When we struggle, if we struggle with depression, what does the Bible have to say? And we've learned some very basic truths. First of all, we learned that there is hope in the Lord. If you struggle with depression, run to the Lord. There's hope in the Lord. Secondly, we learned that joy grows in the life of a person who is abiding in Christ. Joy is the fruit of a life connected to the vine of Jesus Christ. And then we learned some of the enemies of joy in our lives, some things that, that can rob us of our joy. And the Bible mentions a number of them, and we've covered three of those. We said that one enemy is unconfessed sin. Now, that's not true in everybody's life who's struggling with depression, but certainly, if you have unconfessed sin, the Bible says plainly that that can rob you of joy. And so one of the reasons why some people don't have joy is because of unconfessed sin. Not everybody, but some people. That's exactly why they have lost their joy. We said, secondly, the Bible teaches that, that bitterness, the refusal to forgive someone who has sinned against you, can quickly rob you of joy. And that's why some people, not everybody, but some people, that's the source of their depression. And then we said last week that ingratitude, the sin of ingratitude, not properly expressing our thanksgiving to God and to others, can rob you of your joy. But the question is, what if you're still depressed? What if you're still discouraged? Even after knowing these, these biblical truths, what, what, what if we still have depression? What then? What next? Well, that's what I want to answer this morning. As we wrap this up, I, I want to tell you that, that even if you know that there's hope in the Lord and, and joy grows through abiding in Christ, once you know about these three enemies, if you still feel depressed, if, you, if your life is still darkened, where do we go? What do we know? Well, first of all, we live, you know this, but we live in a messed up world. Uh, it's been messed up for a long time. Uh, God created a perfect world, a perfect universe, uh, and then Adam and Eve began to mess it up. Uh, they sinned, and as a result of their sin, according to Genesis 3.17, the ground was cursed. And so many things have, have resulted from that curse. Our world is messed up. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible talks about how the whole earth groans under the weight of the decay 
that's the result of that first sin. That every part of God's creation here that we see and that we live on and that we experience, every part of it is groaning under this curse and the decay that this curse brings. The Bible says there in Romans 8 that not only does the earth groan under the under this decay, but even Christians who have the Holy Spirit of God and who have experienced the first fruits of salvation, the Bible says, even we groan as we live in this broken, messed up world. And we can see evidences all around us. Uh, Hurricane Michael last week uh, surprised many people. Generally, we talk about hurricanes for days and days and days, and then they hit and fizzle, right? This one surprised us, and it was worse than anybody imagined. I don't know if you've seen some of the pictures of Mexico Beach. Uh, it, it just looks like a war zone. There are places where everything is gone. And, and that, is, that is a part of the fact that is evidence that our world is messed up. That is one of the consequences of the world being cursed because of sin. We can look beyond weather. We can see it in a cancer diagnosis. There's not a family here in our church. It's not been touched by, by cancer, by a doctor saying, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's malignant. And cancer, where does cancer come from? Well, cancer comes from living in a broken world. That's part of the curse. Uh, accidental deaths. We had uh, a sheriff deputy right here in Nacogdoches uh, pass away a week and a half ago or uh, a little longer, a little over a week ago, and, and just an, an unexpected uh, tragedy, an accident, and, and, and all of that's because of the curse. Even if we talk about natural deaths, you know that there really aren't any natural deaths. God didn't create us to die. We were created to live forever. And every death is because of sin, either directly or indirectly. Every death is a result of, of the cursed world that we live in. But we see signs not just in nature and in, in medicine, but we suffer because of the curse even more directly because of sin. Either our sin or the sins of those people around us, we experience betrayal and fear and broken hearts and regret and anger and frustration. All of those things, at least in part, are the result of the sin either in our lives or the lives of those people around us. We live in a broken world. And so how is it that we can live with joy in a world that's broken? How can we have hope and gladness when there's cancer and there are hurricanes and there are broken marriages and there are broken promises and there's all this sin in our lives and the lives of those around us. There's all this curse upon the earth. How can we live with joy and gladness in the midst of that? Well, today... Uh, we're going to take a real scattered approach to that answer. I, I like to just take one passage of Scripture and preach from that, and then we'll use some other passages to support that. But today I'm just going to preach a message from the whole Bible. And I'm a little nervous about this. I know Dr. Garrett is in the back, our seminary professor. And uh, you, if you preach like this in seminary, you get an F. I don't know that. But if we just get a little grace from, from him and the, and the seminary people, I, I just want to preach... A, a, a whole Bible message. I want you to hear echoes from the, from the whole canon of Scripture that, that there is an answer if we still struggle with depression because of the broken world that we live in. So we're going to start 
in Revelation 3.21. You don't have to turn there. Uh, you can, but you're going to be chasing me all over the Bible this morning. We'll show this verse to you on the screen. We're going to end up in Psalm 27. So that's, we're making a beeline for that verse if you just want to turn there and I'll meet you there in a moment. But Revelation 3.21, I think this is interesting. He says, to him who overcomes... And your Bible might have a little different word there, but this is a good word, overcomes. To him who overcomes, I will, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, Jesus says, as I have also overcame and sat down with my father uh, on his throne. So Jesus says, if you overcome, I will welcome you into heaven. Just as I overcame trouble, did Jesus overcome some trouble or did he have a life of ease? Jesus overcame some trouble. Just as Jesus, he says, just as I have, overca I have overcome trouble and God welcomed me, so when you overcome, God will welcome you. you know, it's interesting in the Bible, there's not so much talk about avoiding trouble or escaping trouble as there is overcoming trouble. In our American version of Christianity, what we want to talk about most is how we can avoid trouble. I mean, I'm with you on that. I don't even want to have trouble. I just want to steer around it. I want to avoid it. And if I get in trouble, what are my first prayers? What are your first prayers? I want to escape trouble. But that's really not something you see often in the Bible. It doesn't talk so much about avoiding trouble uh, or escaping trouble as it does overcoming trouble. Now, there's some churches that would teach you this morning that if you just trust God in a certain way that you will have no problems in your life, that everything will be easy, that there will be no struggles and no difficulties. But I want you to know that that's just not what scripture says. And that doesn't fit with the lives of the people described in scripture. Their lives were filled with trouble. Even the most faithful ones had trouble. What the Bible talks about is not how to avoid or to escape it, but how to overcome it. You're going to have some trouble in life. The weather is going to be bad sometimes. There are going to be hurricanes. There are going to be tornadoes. You are going to get sick. People you care about are going to die. People will hurt you with their sin, and you will hurt some others, and you will hurt yourself with your sin. We can't avoid that, but we can overcome it. And that's what I want to show you how to do this morning. Four things that the scripture says that we can do. Uh, probably only get to three of them this morning, but a few things we can do in order to overcome the trouble uh, that we face. Number one, anchor your joy in the future. Anchor your joy, not in the present, but in the future. And we all love hero stories. You know what I mean? Stories where uh, the, 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 the focus, the person in the story faces great obstacles, but he perseveres through trial and tribulation and he comes out the other end a victor and he gets a promotion or he gets healed or, or he wins the contest and, and he lives happily ever after. We love hero stories. And the Bible gives us some hero stories. In fact, if you, if you were to look in, in Hebrews chapter 11, which is a whole list of people of faith, people of strong faith, you'll find several hero stories. You'll find the story of, of Moses and the story of Noah and the story of Joseph and the story of Abraham. Those are hero stories. They faced adversity and they came out victors. But when you're reading Hebrews 11, this long list of heroes, 
you get to the bottom and you find a description of people whose lives more closely match our own. And let me just read to you of some of those. Hebrews 11.35 says, Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. He talks about there were some people and they were tortured and instead of recanting their faith, instead of walking away from God, they allowed themselves to continue to be tortured. Why? Because of their hope in the resurrection. Their focus was in the future. It's a terrible description of what some of these went through. It says in the next verse, others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through faith, but they did not receive what was promised. These people believed that God loved them and had a plan for their lives. But they never saw God come through for them this side of eternity. They didn't get released from prison. They didn't get healed. They didn't get rescued. They died still believing in God. What, what did they do? They, they obviously didn't read Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. <laughs> Have you read that book? Or, or Kenneth Copeland's book, Prosperity, The Choice is Yours. I mean, th that wasn't their approach. They understood that sometimes life is hard. What they did is they anchored their joy in the future, in eternity. They said even in the midst of their suffering, our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in eternal life. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus overcame and he was accepted into the arms of God. And when I overcome, when I persevere, I'll be accepted into the arms of Christ. They anchored their joy in the future. Uh, listen to how Jesus gave a similar instruction. In Luke 6, 23, he's talking to people who are going through hardship. And he says, rejoice in that day, leap for joy. Now, let's just stop there. That sounds absurd, Jesus. What do you mean? I'm going through hardship. I should rejoice and leap for joy? But he explains it. He says, take note. Your reward is great in heaven. And he goes on. But what, what was he saying? Why should they rejoice? Not because their life was going good. No, Jesus is talking to people who are suffering. He says, rejoice. Not because I'm going to get you out of the suffering necessarily. Not because I'm going to heal the disease, rescue your wife, whatever. No, no. Rejoice because your hope in heaven. Take note that, that there's heaven in your future. And you can trust in God. I remember years ago... Uh, it was really when we just had two children, we would, we would take a vacation trip every year uh, from Alabama to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Now, that's not as long of a drive as it would be from here, uh, but with two little kids in a tiny little car that we had in those days, we didn't have two pennies to rub together. My dad had a place there at Myrtle Beach, and so we would go and, and we could stay and eat bologna sandwiches for free. And so we would we'd make our way. It was about... 10 hours, 11 hours, it seemed like it was 100 hours. So we would get in this car. We'd stay for a couple of weeks at a time, so we would have all of our stuff. I mean, there was a time when the kids were little. We had, you know, play pens and little cages for the kids. What do you call those things? Um, 
I don't remember, boxing, I don't know, babysitters, what we call them. Uh, so I mean, we had all this stuff packed in the car. I mean, there wasn't any room. And, and the kids weren't always happy because it, while it seemed like a long trip to me, it really seemed like a long trip to them. And so every few minutes, how many more minutes, how many more minutes, how many more minutes? And, and you know, none of us were happy. None of us, none of us liked each other. We all wish we had a different family. Um, but we went every year. And you know how we went every year? You know how we survived it? You know, right? We didn't, we didn't focus on the journey. We focused on the destination. Once we got there, two weeks of just relaxing. It was just wonderful. Some of the, some of the fondest times in my life were, were, were those, those long vacations that we used to take in the summer. And it was wonderful. Now, the destination made the journey worth it. We anchored our hope. We would get about Atlanta, which was about two hours from where we lived, an hour and a half, two hours from where we lived. And then the traffic, you get into Atlanta, it's like Houston, and the traffic would just be terrible. And we would just then be reaching the boiling point of hatred for one another. <laughs> and we would get to Atlanta and the traffic would get so bad, and I just want to turn around and go back home. But I anchored my hope in the future. We're eventually going to get there and it'll be worth it. Yeah. There are just going to be some hard times in life, and we're going to have to choose to anchor our hope in the future. Some of you are going through some hard times. A couple of you have shared it with me this morning. You've told me a story. Uh, Mark, uh, executive pastor, he sent me a message even through the song service about two uh, situations that will need some attention this afternoon. People are struggling, people, hardships. Uh, there are going to be some hardships. And we're going to pray that God will change them, and he may. He certainly can, but he may not. Whether he changes the situation or he doesn't change the situation, we have to anchor our joy in the future. Romans 8, 18 and 19, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. We have to anchor our hope in the future. Well, number two, we must divest in the things of this world. Now, our world offers some things that can bring satisfaction, both to Christians or to unbelievers alike. There's just some things that, that are satisfying. I, I made a list of them. Personal achievement, uh, comfort and ease, power and influence, luxury, uh, sexual satisfaction, financial independence, a comfortable retirement, uh, the comfort and camaraderie of friends and family. There are just some things that can bring satisfaction in our lives. It, whether you're saved or lost, those things are good things. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. Except for this, listen. All of those things are temporary and precarious, right? So, so none of those things are guaranteed, and none of those things last forever. They're all temporary. They're all precarious. If we put our hope for joy in those kinds of things, in those worldly things that can bring satisfaction but are precarious and temporary, if we put our hope in those worldly things, then our hope, our joy will also be precarious, and it'll also be temporary. For instance... If your number one goal in life, where you hope to get your satisfaction in life, 
You've put all your marbles in this basket. If your hope is in a long, easy, luxurious retirement, if that's your one goal, and you turn 60 years old and the doctor says you have one year to live, you will lose your joy. You see, you have invested yourself in the world. And that's precarious and temporary. If, if all of your comfort comes from your family and your friends. Now, are family and friends important? Absolutely. Valuable. Gifts from the Lord. But if all of your comfort and all of your hope and all of your joy is in family and friends and you lose a loved one, then you lose your joy. If, if all of your hope is in ease and comfort, then you cannot have peace and joy when life is difficult. What we need to do is to raise our focus. All those things are okay, but we need to raise our focus from the world to the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will take care of themselves. He doesn't say the other things are evil or bad, but he says our focus needs to be on heaven. We're going to go through difficulties, and if we're going to have that kind of joy, we have to divest in the earth. We've got to say that worldly things are, are, are good, but the worldly things are not going to be the sum total of my life. If all of your life is about worldly pleasures, then when difficult, come, difficult times come, you will lose, you will lose your joy. I, I see Christians all the time fighting for their rights. I got a right for this. I need to get my part. We're fighting to get ahead. We want to make sure nobody gets our stuff. We want to make sure nobody gets our promotion. We want to make sure that, you know, it's all about us, all about us. I got to get, 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 get. But to use uh, the language of a younger generation, maybe we just need to chill, okay? All of this stuff, our career, our health, our money, our relationships, none of that's important from an eternal perspective. I mean, there is some value, but we get all caught up in that because we're so invested in this world. We need to divest in the world and be more invested in God. Let me read to you a, a, a passage from Hebrews 10. It's, it's a passage that doesn't get a lot of attention because we just don't like it, I, I think. I, I don't, I've never heard anybody preach on this passage. So, uh, Dr. Scarborough over there has probably preached on it, but, I, but most people, they just don't preach on this because it's, uh, it's tough. But it's the perspective of some early Christians who went through hardship. And I was just going to read a verse of it, but let me read, let me read several verses. Hebrews 10.32, he says, Remember the early days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and other times you were companions of those who were treated. He says, ever since you've been following the Lord, life has been tough, he says. And then verse 34 for you sympathize with prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Just let that sink in a moment. He says people were taking stuff that was yours. People were getting your promotion, stealing your lawnmower. I mean, life was tough. And you had joy. Let, let, them, let them take it. Let them have the promotion. Let, let them get ahead of me. Let them take my stuff. Let, them, let him get the, be in the spotlight. For you sympathize with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. Does that make sense? Well, how, how were they able to just chill when life was hard and unfair and when there was no justice? They said, this is not my home anyway. I'm, 
I'm headed to heaven. If you want my stuff, you take it. I, I wasn't going to take it with me anyway. If you want to get the spotlight, then you can have it. If you want to win the argument, win the argument. Because this isn't my home. I'm going to heaven. If, if we're going to be able to, to have joy, we're going to have to divest in the things of the world. Uh, and, then, and then finally, not finally, but number three, we need to invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in the kingdom of God. Now, for you to be able to do number one and number two, put your, anchor your hope in eternity and divest in the world, those are nice preaching points, but let's just be honest, they probably won't happen in your life. It's just something that sounds good. Unless you do this one, unless you invest in the kingdom of God. We need, we need to understand that where our treasure is, this will sound familiar to you, where our treasure is, our heart will be also. Whatever you invest in, that's where your heart will go. And so if you invest your whole heart, time, energy, and resources in building a business, building a close-knit family, building your retirement, building a farm, building a workshop, building a whatever you're building, and all those things are good, but if you just invest your whole heart, time, resources, energy into that, then guess where your heart will be? Right here on earth. But if we will invest in the things of God It'll raise our heart. It'll make point one and point two realities in our lives. A few years ago, I inherited some stock uh, when someone in my, um, my family had passed away and they had left, left me some stock. It wasn't a great sum of stock, but it was a few thousand dollars stock in a company. I don't even remember the name of it now. Donna probably remembers, but um, it was a company that owned NASCAR tracks around, around the country. And I'm, I was not a NASCAR fan. I, you know what NASCAR is, you know, where they drive around in circle for hours and hours and hours. I, I, I was not a fan at all. I, uh, I used to live next to the Talladega Raceway or close to the Talladega Raceway. I even went out there and did some chaplaincy work when somebody died one time in a motorcycle accident. But I, I had no interest in NASCAR until I got this stock. And then I was very interested. I, I, I watched the stock every day go up a few pennies or go down a few pennies. And, and it didn't have to change very many pennies at all. And I, I was reading about all of the market factors and influences that went into that. And, you know, I wanted to know, you know, why, do I, why am I $10 richer today? And how did I lose $10 yesterday? And, and I was focused. I was hyper-focused on that. Now, why was I focused on NASCAR? Because I was invested in NASCAR. I owned a tiny little slice of NASCAR, and I was very interested after a year or so, I sold those stocks. And since then, I have, I don't even know if NASCAR is still a thing. They still go around in circles. As far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, the stock may have doubled the day after I sold it. And I would, don't tell me if that's what happened. But uh, I, I, have, I have no idea. Why, why am I, why, why, why did my interest, why, why was it super focused for a while and then not focused at all either end of that? Because I'm no longer invested in NASCAR. Whatever you invest in, your time, your energy, your resources, that's where your heart will be. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Let's invest in the things of God. I'm running out of time. Number four, chase after the Lord. Uh, we're going to save that for another day. I want to get, I really want to get to this last, this last truth. Psalm 27, 4. We're going to show this to you on the screen. I, I do wish you would turn there in your Bibles because I want you to be able to find it easily later on. Let me read it to you. You follow along with me. And then we're going to read it together. Psalm 27, 4. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life 
gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. All right, you got it? Now, I know audience participation is not your favorite thing, uh, but we're going to do some. Uh, I want us to read this aloud. The person next to you doesn't read. You have my permission to elbow them sharply. All right, you set? Verse four, we're going to read aloud. You see it on the screen. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what our desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. All right, I'm gonna give you an A minus and we're gonna do it again. All right, look back, verse four, you ready? I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Church, there's hope in that verse. In the midst of our trouble and our difficulty, there's hope in that verse. Now, is your life hard today? Are you going through a hardship? Is it difficult? If it is, then I'm sorry, I really am. And I cannot tell you, listen, I can't tell you that the hurt is gonna stop soon. I can't promise you that the circumstance is about to change. I can't tell you that God is going to heal you or your loved one before he or she dies. I cannot promise you that your wayward child is going to come back. I cannot guarantee that your marriage is going to make it. I don't know if you will ever get a better job. I know that there is joy and peace available in the Lord, but I can't tell you that the joy and the peace are going to change your circumstances. But I can tell you this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. If you just hang on. And so I have two things I want to ask you to do. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, see there are people who come to church week in and week out because you, you have an affinity for church or church people and, and you're interested in the things of God and you, you want to know how to have a better marriage, how to overcome depression. Those are, those are things everybody wants to know. But there are people who come to church every week and you've never really surrendered to God. And so while you can have some of the some of the comfort of church life, you don't have that assurance that in the midst of whatever kind of storm the world may bring, that, that your hope, your joy is anchored in the future. You don't have that assurance that you're going to live with God forever in heaven. Today, how do you make it through life when it's hard? You have to have that assurance. Today, trust Jesus. Today, say, I'm guilty of sin. I have no hope apart from Christ, but I surrender to Jesus because he died on the cross and he rose from the grave. Today, I want my name to be written in his book. Today, I want to be adopted into the family of God. Would you trust Christ today? I can't promise you that life's going to be easy. Life might even get harder. But I can promise you what your eternity is and that it will be worth it if you put your trust in Christ. That's, that's request number one. Request number two, would you recite 
Psalm 27, 4. Can we put that verse back up there, please? If you're going through hardship, recite this verse. And recite it every morning. And recite it ten times a day. Write this verse and tape it on the infusion machine when you get chemotherapy. Tape this verse uh, to the front of your desk to remind you when you deal with that impossibly difficult boss. Take this verse to the cemetery when you mourn over the loss of the person that you love. Write this verse down and put it in your bedroom when your marriage is hard. And know this, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Say this verse, say this verse, recite this verse, memorize this verse, write this verse down until this verse anchors your joy in eternity. There may be some hard days. Church, there may be some hard years or decades. But if our joy is anchored in eternity, we have something to be excited about. And we can have joy in the midst of the trouble. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Let me pray briefly. Father, uh, thank you that we can count on you and your promise of eternity. Let that rattle around in our hearts. Let it be something firm we can stand upon. Let us anchor our joy with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the Lord.